Welcome to Democracy in Action, a show from the League of Women Voters of Broward County, where we bring you the stories of everyday people who are making democracy work. This week on Democracy in Action, I speak with Dr. Monica Elliott. She is the current president of the League of Women Voters of Broward County, a former professor of plant pathology at the University of Florida, and she also has a law degree. In this interview, we discuss what it was like growing up on a farm in a small town, the similarities between science and the law, and she explains to us what democracy and action means to her. Please welcome Dr. Monica Elliott. Thank you, Monica Elliott, our president of the League of Women Voters of Broad County, for agreeing to speak with us tonight. Myself, Janil, will be the host, and my co-host is Nakia Ruffin. Say hi, Nakia. Hi. All right. So I'm going to start by asking you, so what was your first political action or memory of being political as an American? I think I grew up in the Vietnam era. So when I was in high school, that was a very much an important part of my life. I grew up in a a small town, you know, small farming community in central Illinois, grew up on a small farm. And the Vietnam War really affected small towns. Um, You weren't going to have conscientious objectors in you know, small rural towns like that. And so, you know, we all knew somebody who went to Vietnam, never came back, et cetera. And I still remember going with my boyfriend at the time when I was a senior uh, to register for the draft at the post office. And uh, it was all, although it was highly unlikely at that particular time that they would get drafted, uh, the boys in my class it was still a possibility because the war was just kind of starting to um, wind down. And then that's also the time when Nixon and the Watergate affair all came to a head. And so Nixon, you know, resigned from, from being president and then Ford took over. So it was a real, you know, you had the Vietnam experience going on and then we had all the upheaval of Watergate. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the only reason Ford became president was because the first vice president, Agnew, he got caught up in a corruption scandal. And so he got booted out of office and then Ford became vice president. And then Nixon, you know, resigns. And, uh, you know, it was was quite the upheaval at the time. And so you're kind of involved in politics. It seems like it, it almost is like the time that we're in right now in terms of You have to be living under a rock to not know there's something political going on in this country. And I don't think it was as divisive at that time as it is now, but yet in some ways it was because it was just so anti-war versus, you know, being loyal, you, you know, you had to go into the army. But by the time I was in high school, everybody was so tired of the Vietnam War that Everybody was worn out. Everybody just wanted out of it. We'd just seen too much damage. Okay. So your first memory was basically the Vietnam War, right? This kind of turbulent era of not just politics, but just just in the world, I guess, in general at the time. So when, when was your first time you'd say registering the vote. Was it at the time when you say you went with your boyfriend or is that something else? 
No, oh, yeah, I, that I was, don't really remember. Yeah, I don't really remember going to register to vote, um, but I know that I would have because I definitely remember the first presidential election uh, was in 1976 and mm -hmm. it was Ford versus Carter. And uh, so that would have been the first presidential election. And I know, I remember voting in that. I, you know, when I actually registered to vote, I don't really know. I don't know if they came around to the high school or, or how, how we did it. Um, in a small community like that, uh, it would have been pretty hard not to vote because if you, if you hadn't voted, everybody knew it. <laughs> I mean, we, were, we were essentially okay. voting in, uh, if you lived out in the country, out in the rural areas, they were essentially uh, just sheds where they had the uh, road equipment, you know, for moving snow and things around. And uh, mm -hmm. I still remember that. Okay, so I guess you grew up in one of those small towns where it's like, there are like 500 votes. So like if it was 498, you know, like two people didn't show up kind of thing. Just about, yes. <laughs> okay, that's fun. You, you didn't get away with much in a small town. Everybody knew what everybody else was doing. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. All right, so Nakia, let's take it away. Okay, so Monica, you were telling us how you grew up in a small town. And so what else about where you grew up that you think defined you? My, my parents were somewhat liberal for a small community. I think that was actually from my dad's experience in the Korean War. He, well, he had always, he would, my, my father was one of these people who did exactly what he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do. And the fact that he graduated from high school, my, my grandparents always said that was just pure luck. In, in, seriously, he, you know, it's one of these things, all of the grandchildren on my dad's side, we, we've all done very well on the school, but most of the kids or my aunts and uncles not, did not necessarily. And it was just my, my parents were pretty free spirits. And for that matter, so were my grandparents. And we were allowed to not conform. If we didn't want to conform in a small town, we didn't have to. And so to a certain extent, we were a little bit rebellious. And I had three girlfriends that we were all kind of like that. We were all good students though. And because we were good students, nobody would really say anything. <laughs> so okay. we got away with a lot of things that I think we wouldn't have gotten away from if we had been, you know, failing students, you know, you know that type of thing. Because one thing, and I was kind of going bit down memory lane today, knowing this is going to occur, is I can remember my history teacher. I don't, we, I, we were probably talking about, you know, protests, because, you know, the Vietnam War, you know, that was all the protests and everything going on. And I think he dared us to leave the room and protest on our own. And of course we did. I mean, there, there, was, there, there were kind of the four musketeers, not the three musketeers. And we did. And of course we got in, in trouble. But at the same time, you know, he came to our defense because he had dared us, you know, to do it, uh, to be defiant. And, and it was just kind of, you know, teaching us. So it's kind of a strange uh, little place in terms of a small community, everybody's supposed to conform, and yet we are allowed to be, you know, rebellious. Wow, that really 
seems like that wouldn't happen in what we call it small town America that, you know, you're supposed to conform. And yet here you are, the four musketeers, just being rebellious and then having the uncle back you up. It's a funny story, actually, very funny story. It's amazing, like, to show you even no matter where you are, you can be yourself, you know, and people can still accept you for the way you are. So, Janelle. Yeah, I wanted to kind of, not really backtrack a little bit, but I wanted to ask. So I know you grew up in the small town and you said you're, you and the four musketeers being a little rebellious, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more kind of about how you grew up? As far as when I say how you grew up, I mean, like, how did, how did you get to be Monica Elliott, who you are now, if that makes sense? Yes, it does. Education, even though my father was very rebellious in high school, anyway, education was always considered to be very important in our family. Um, my mother would have liked to have gone to college, but um, because of economic circumstances, certainly was not able to do so. And what was typical for that time, you know, she married um, early and then had three children. You know, we were all about a year and a half apart. But education was always considered to be absolutely crucial uh, for our family. Even though I grew up on a farm, we were not, my family was not long-term farmers. My grandfather had a concrete block uh, business, as did my great-grandfather. But the main reason that my grandfather had bought uh, farmland was it was going to be his means of trying to keep control of his four boys because he thought it well if they were out on the farm they couldn't get into as much trouble okay <laughs> so it helped a little bit my father was the only one who really got into farming and, and did farm with my grandfather so we weren't traditional farmers you know which would be unlike kind of the rest of the community my family was actually always the outsiders in the small community where I grew up because my parents had moved there when they were like 20 in their early 20s after my grandfather had bought this land. Whereas the rest of the community probably gone there with the covered wagon sort of thing. So in some ways we we're always viewed as outsiders. The other reason we are viewed as outsiders is because uh, we were Lutherans. We, the rest of the family, you know, in these small communities, uh, in this, these particular towns, the only churches were what we call the Christian church or the Methodist church. And by the Christian church, it was the born again, Christian, evangelical type. Okay. And then there was the Methodist church. And you actually had to go about 20 miles south to find the rest of the Lutherans where the Germans had immigrated. Because again, this is, you know, farmland and where people had migrated uh, from. My grandma, grandfather on my mother's side, he came from Germany between the two world wars. And so anyway, we were like the only Lutheran family in the community. So we were oddballs in terms of, you know, having moved in the community and then being, you know, Lutherans. So this all sounds kind of strange, but when you're an outsider, you always, of course, want to feel like you're in. And so, you know, you're always trying to conform to that. But I think there was always just a little bit of a rebellious uh, streak. The other thing, again, education was always important. And for some reason, my parents, the small town doctor that we went to, he was the 
instigator of trying to make sure a lot of the kids in the community did go to college. I don't know why, I just know that Dr. Taylor, that was one of the things that he was always, you know, talking to you when you went in for your annual physical and stuff like that. And so he was always very instrumental too in encouraging us to go on and get that college education. Farming is not easy, especially on a small farm. I mean, it's not something that you make a lot of money at. And my mother, uh, again, unlike a lot of the farm families in the community, she worked at the General Electric plant because that was the only way we were going to survive. And thank goodness she did, because then it meant she had a good pension and good health insurance and everything like that. Where was it? So anyway, we were not, my brother and my sister, we were not encouraged to stay on the farm. We were actually encouraged to get an education and leave the farm. And that's a little bit different than what you uh, would expect. But, you know, there wasn't very much land. Again, my grandfather owned it. So essentially we were just leasing it from my grandfather to farm. And so there wasn't really that many prospects. Anyway, we were encouraged to go to, uh, go to college. I like science and I was encouraged to uh, pursue the science. And so that's what, that's what I did. And I don't, know what else to say except that that's why I ended up I was always encouraged there was never a time when I was stopped from going to college mm. my parents I remember I got married early the first time around uh, actually my uh, freshman sophomore year in college everybody was very disappointed that I was getting married it wasn't what was a- I convinced them that I was not going to stop college just because I was getting married, that they finally came around to, okay, this is going to be okay. We're going to live with it. We may not like it, but we're going to live with it. And, you know, would help to encourage that because of course, then the first thing everybody thought about, oh, she's going to get pregnant and drop out and all that type of thing. (laughs) And that was also about the time when the pill was available and we had that choice to not have children. And so I've never, I never had children. And it's interesting, my brother never had any children either. My sister has uh, had one child, a son. So that we're a small family. And, but my mother never ever pushed for grandchildren, ever. She never asked, you know, when we were gonna have kids, anything like that. We were always allowed to do what we wanted to do. And I know as a, I developed my career, especially in the sciences, it became very obvious that it was going to be difficult to have children and maintain a scientific career. Mm. Uh, so I was one thing that was early on was, okay, you know, what, what was I going to do? How to balance everything out? I've always admired women who did balance out a career and children. And I know a lot of women scientists who have done that, but I knew that that was something that I could not do. And that was one thing, that was kind of one consideration with my second marriage was, you know, did Tim want to have children or not? Because I was pretty much confirmed by that time that I couldn't do both. <laughs> so, but those, those are the choices that, I, that I've made along the way. Cool. Uh that's, that's interesting. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about, like, I know you, have, you had a scientific career, but why did you choose specifically the field that you chose? And also, I realize you have 
I, forgive me if I'm wrong. Do you have a a law degree as well? I'm yes. almost so. I was like, what was that all about? Was that how was that involved? Just to tell me a little about that. Well, that was kind of rebellion too. Um, so my science degree. I am a plant pathologist. So essentially I am a plant doctor. Mm -hmm. And that was not what I originally started out um, to do after I did my uh, undergraduate degree in uh, science actually and history. I wanted to be sure I could get a job when I got out. Um, at that time, I thought I was married mm -hmm. to a local farmer. I figured I was gonna be you know, stuck in the area and I wanted to be sure I could get a job somewhere. So anyway. But I started to do a master's degree um, at Eastern Illinois University. And one of the classes that was offered for graduate students was plant pathology. And I absolutely loved it. I just fell in love with it. It was one of these things that in some ways I probably would have liked to have been a medical doctor, but I can't stand the sight of blood. <laughs> and, you know, so it's just, and so you can do everything that you wanted to do in medicine, but you can do it with plants and plants don't talk back and you can dissect them and nobody is going to complain about it. It was just wonderful. And so then I, that's how I ended up in plant pathology. And I just, I've just absolutely adored it. When I came down to Florida, I had been here um, about five, six years and I was made my first promotion from assistant to associate professor, but then is the next step from associate to full professor. Mm -hmm. Well, at that time, the center director and my department chair are, were both, well, one was old Greek European and the other one was old Southern gentleman. And they made it pretty mm -hmm. clear that I was not going to get promoted to full professor because I didn't, again, a little bit of a rebellious streak and just weren't going to make it easy. And so I was deciding, you know, what, where was I going to go? And I think it was about, it was about that time and maybe a couple of years before that, my sister had gone through a divorce and uh, so got a little bit more involved in terms of law. But anyway, for some reason, I decided I would look into a law career. And Nova Southeastern University was right across the street from where the University of Florida has their research center located. And I went over there and they had a night program. And I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose and why not do it? It'd be something I could do at night. And it was extremely interesting. After I started law school, I realized why, to a certain extent, why I was being held back a little bit. And that's because my uh, husband then and now was also a professor with the University of Florida. So they were making the assumption I wasn't going to go anywhere because I was stuck. Tim, you know, Tim was at the top of his career. He was going to be staying. He'd already had an offer in Texas and turned it down. You know, he was going to be staying here. So they knew I would be staying here. And as soon as I started law school, and then there were some other changes within administration. They realized I could leave. And once they realized that I could leave, they didn't have a hold over me. At least that's the way it seemed at that time. It was just all of a sudden, everything just changed. And, and I realized that about halfway through my uh, four years going to law school, but I loved the law. It suddenly explained everything to me. 
It's like science explained the natural world and then law explained the rest of the world in terms of why it was so important to be sure to vote for president of your choice because mm -hmm. they were going to influence the Supreme Court justices and all the other judges. I mean, we always think about the Supreme Court judges, but there's all these lower court judges that get put in place because of whoever the president is. And, and I was just also learning about business law, learning about, um, I loved wills and trusts. It's like they couldn't make up those stories. I mean, you know, they'd have these cases coming out of, uh, you thought they were making up all these cases for the wills and trusts. And you realize, no, these are real cases in, you know, in, in the courts. And it was just fascinating. It was like, you know, one soap opera after another. But I just, I really enjoyed it. The international, I just enjoyed all the different aspects of it. Anyway, by the time I graduated from law school, everything had changed at the university in terms of we had a totally different administration. The two people who had, I felt, been keeping me down, keeping me back, they were gone. Uh, we had different administrators. And I was kind of surprised at my first evaluation when we had a new administrator. And they asked, you know, why hadn't I applied for full professor yet? And I was like, and, you know, I think the university is just one big gossip mill. I was surprised that they didn't know about it because I had applied for full professor and I had fought it and actually won. But upper administration always has the final word. Now, the irony of this is that I ultimately became an administrator <laughs> within the university. But oh, okay. I felt, you know, I had learned from the mistakes that other people, you know, what had been done to me, I was made very sure it never happened to anybody else because that mm -hmm. it, it was pure, you know, discrimination against women at that time. And that's wow. one thing that I think is really important for young women to know today is things can change. And that's what we're seeing happening right now. The possibility that Roe be Wade could get overturned. I would have never, ever thought that was possible. Or some of the other things that are happening to women, you know, we, we thought we were past that. We thought we were on our way up to the top and we were going to break that glass ceiling and everything would be absolutely even 50, 50 between men and women. And I think we're getting there. I mean, I see it with the younger generation, like with my nephew's generation, but we still have a long ways to go. And I don't think as women, we should never, ever should forget that. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. Oh, so I just got a little follow-up. So I know you went into all of that as far as like your background and going to Nova. So you kind of, just I just want to make sure, so you kind of went to law school because you just really loved kind of constitutional aspect of it. Yes, I mean, I, it, was, it was a career that I thought I would be interested in if I had mm -hmm. to leave science, I didn't really want to leave science. Yeah. But I had, I was going to have to, because we weren't going to be moving. Chen was very secure in his, his position. So I was looking for a career that I thought would be a benefit to me. And so that's why I tried uh, the law school and, and I loved it. I, I've never practiced. Um, oh, okay. But that yeah, still seems it seems like, because when I think of law school, to me, it just seems like it's really difficult thing. So I'm just kind of amazed that you were able to kind of, you're a professor and you're like, you know what, I'll just do 
I'll do law as well. And it's just like, I just want to do that. So I just find that really amazing. They're actually very similar. That's what's always so funny is because science and law, they always claim to be incompatible. And yet they're very, very similar. Because as Nakia knows, you know, there's the black letter law, you know, those things that are just infallible and it will always be there. And science has certain things that we know are always going to be there. But then there's all these shades of gray. And then as you move forward, uh, things that you thought were so certain become uh, uncertain. And so law and science actually has a lot in common. And it requires a lot of the same, you know, analytical skills, um, too. So it, it, in some ways, it seemed like a far stretch, but not, mm-hmm. not, not really. Cool. What I did very, hate very about cool. law school was the, was the Socratic method. I just hated that. I just, <laughs> you know, the, the, whole, the whole thing with law school is it's like they, they're, you know, asking you this question and you're supposed to be going through all this thought process about how you should be getting to the answer. And it's just like, I know the answer. Why can't I just say what it is? Why do I have to go through this whole process? And, um, but mm-hmm. Somehow that got established as the way that you teach law and they seem to be unable to get out of that routine. Gotcha. Okay, so I guess I'll ask you, so so what made you want to get involved with the League of Women Voters, right? You have all this, I know you retired, right? And you were kind of, that was kind of like your next step, but why, why did you choose to do that instead of something else? You know, I feel like you kind of have, like the world was your oyster, Monica, so. You could have done anything else. So why did you do that? I guess it was just, it was one of, it was at the very top of my bucket list. You know, I knew enough about the League of Women Voters to know one that it's nonpartisan. I I am very staunchly associated with one party and one party's view usually. But again, that's kind of coming from my scientific background where there's always two sides to everything. And that's what I liked about the league was the fact that it's nonpartisan. The other thing about the league is that a big part of it is education. And I, that's at least that was my perception of it. And that's the way it's turned out to be. Mm-hmm. So I got highly involved with the voter services and finding out that they did all these um, presentations on like the amendments and well, 2018 was the year of all the amendments. And so it wasn't that much of a bit of a shift to be, because I, as in my career, I was a researcher, but I also did uh, extension, which is essentially adult education, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, talking to people about whatever it is, you know, talking about plant diseases, telling them, you know, why their palms were dying and what to do about it. And so it wasn't that big a shift for me then to be able to do do the educational um, component. Um, because that was something I've been doing for, you know, 30 some years. So I think that's why I liked about the league was that it, it was nonpartisan and then also educational. Gotcha. It was that or Habitat for Humanity. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's fun too. I've done that before. Yeah. You, you build, build the homes and stuff. That's pretty right. cool. Right. I knew I could do it during the winter. I just wasn't sure I'd survive a summer you know, up on top of the roof. So I, I, I'd done that once too and ended up up, up on top of the roof and it's like, oh, am I here? <laughs> yeah, it's, I've done the roof stuff too where we're hammering jingles and stuff. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Oh, that's what, at least that's what I did. But <laughs> Cool. So, uh, Nakia, 
you were talking about how you've been very involved with the voter services, but I know that you've been involved with a bunch of other stuff too. So can you tell me about some of the other projects you worked on with the league in, here in Broward in the committee and you know, what did you do? Well, um, it really has all been voter services in one form or another. Okay. Um, because the forms are a part of voter services. And so we learned how to pivot from doing the forms in person to doing mm -hmm. them via Zoom, which has turned out to be beneficial for the league because we don't have a lot of money. And it mm -hmm. be has become very difficult to be able to find venues that will, you know, that you can get for free. That was mm -hmm. one of the reasons we initially were going to partner with the ACLU was they had a venue that they used, I think it's like the second Wednesday of the month. And that was why we were going to do our forms in conjunction with the ACLU. Mm -hmm. And then we just continued to do them um, over Zoom. But that's been a project. I also, I did also worked a lot initially with the environmental um, committee. And um, again, one of the things I was doing there, one of the first things they wanted to have was like a PowerPoint on recycling and plastics. And again, those are the skills that I've been using all my life in my career. And so just pivoting to do it that way. So those are you know, some of the other projects that I've been working on. I've, I've learned how to do Facebook in terms of how to post. And we have one member, Ronnie Heller, who posts every day, and then I do additional ones. And then we have another lady, Denise uh, McFall, who is posting for the environmental uh, committee. So we're trying mm -hmm. to you know, do a lot. I'm not really a social media person, but I understand that that's what your generation likes to do. So I'm trying, <laughs> I really am. <laughs> well, you're doing a wonderful job. So I want to um, just backtrack a little bit and go into you know, you're talking about how you, you know, really are into educating, right, through the league. And you said something about forums. So what kind of forums have you been doing? What's been going on with the league? Uh, with the forums, those were, again, you're educating the um, voter by presenting the candidates um, to the voters and coming up with hopefully good questions that will help you separate the all the different candidates. I mean, this is really an unusual year in Broward County, especially on the Democratic um, side, because we had so many candidates. We, well, we had the opportunity to elect a new state attorney, a new public defender, a new supervisor of election, you know, three major um, positions in the county, and none, you know, no incumbent was running. And so that made it a really wide open uh, field. So um, it was important then to present those candidates to the public so that they could um, decide who they were going to vote for. Because it's one of these things where, because we are such a democratic county, that in most cases, there's also the sheriff, that whoever wins the democratic primary in all probability is going to win the election, the general election. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, why those forms, but, but when we're doing our forms, we had everybody, we had all the democratic candidates, the Republican candidates, 
and um, independent candidates um, also. I must say, I just want you to explain to what the forums are because you know some people listen to this and they've never gone to a forum or listened to a forum as we do now via Zoom and Facebook Live. And I was just wanting to say I enjoy watching the forums, but my favorite thing that you do is the time. So what do you do at the time? I have, I have my iPhone, I have my phone, and I'm just timing it. So as soon as they start to speak, I, I put, uh, you know, I put in, punch the little button, and when there's 10 seconds left, I had my little star to show that they had 10 seconds left, and then the heart to show that it was time to stop. And see, I had those for the live forms also. So that didn't really change. See, oh. we did, we did a more of a, well, it was still a forum, but they tried to do a debate style back in December with the public defender and the state attorneys. Uh, we had two of, we had reporters that were asking the questions. And, but I was doing the timing for that one too. And that's where we had the stars. That's where we started out with the signs. And as far as I know, and we've asked, and we've had a lot of people ask us too, if there was such a thing as a mechanical or, or a digital timer in Zoom that you could put up on the screen. And as far as I know, there, it, there never was such a thing. So we just stuck to our little signs. And the only reason we use a heart as a stop, as the stop is because I couldn't find at Michael's a typical stop sign. I just think of them as like the league's emojis for the forums, like you have the forum emojis. Yeah, so. <laughs> it, it brought a smile to everybody's candidate space. I think that was the most important thing we tried to do with the forums was at the very beginning before we're kind of going, before we go live and everybody gets tense, was to try to find something fun or something very everyday that everybody could connect with, you know, what their kids were doing, you know, that type of thing. So, but I think just to put everybody at ease. And, and in general, you know, the forums were actually very civilized, except for that last uh, sheriff uh, forum. Um, oh, yeah, I, I missed that one. How'd that go? It was rowdy. And see it. It's, uh, it's a little bit like the Trump um, Biden uh, forum, where they just essentially, you know, they were beating on Sheriff Tony and, and likewise. And Emma Jean Antonay, with the, she's with the Young Professional Networks with the Urban League. She mm -hmm. did an excellent job. I think it was after about the sixth question. She just called a timeout. I mean, because it was, it was just like little boys in a room. And she said, I think it's, we need to take a timeout for 30 seconds. And then I made a comment before we started because they, again, they weren't answering the questions. All they did was pivot so that they could badmouth each other. And so we had, I think, really one question that they did probably answer. And that it did, it lasted just for one question and then they went back to it. And uh, we actually terminated uh, the whole thing earlier because it, we just knew there, there was no point of going forward with it. Oh, wow. So, okay. I got to see that one then. You made me excited. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's not, it's not very informative. Oh, okay. Because it's all stuff that's been in the news already. I mean, there's already the accusations that go back and forth, you know, between, between the candidates. 
Mm-hmm. And so you really didn't get to learn that much about what they would do. Some of them you do, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So let's pivot a little bit. So you've done all this work. You're the president of Illegal Women Voters. So if you're talking to someone and they're skeptical, they're like, my vote doesn't matter. Why should I show up? There are, what, 150 million people that vote. Why should my one vote matter? Why do you think that's it, that it's important to vote in general? Because everything we do is somehow tied to government officials that we elect, whether you realize it or not. It all goes back to government. I mean, that's what a democracy is. It's a government that's run by the people. And Mm -hmm. we have elected those people to help us, you know, prevent anarchy. And we're trying to make sure that we have a place that is civilized. And that Mm -hmm. is what our government does. I mean, that's what you're doing with the government is you're giving individual, uh, some of your individual rights up to a central government so that they, so that we have some sort of order in our lives. I mean, that's what the police are doing. That's, that's what the government is doing for, for us. So that, that's why it's important. It doesn't matter if it, you're in co- it doesn't matter if you're a student, you know, school board, college universities, you know, ultimately that money comes from the government if, for the public universities, uh, mm-hmm. hospitals, it's your taxes associated with it. You know, everything you touch in life is somehow associated with elected uh, officials. And so, yes, your vote does count. Gotcha. So, Nakia? So, you've done so much with the league and now being the president, what are some of the biggest challenges in in the work that you do with the league? I think our biggest challenge is trying to uh, communicate and interact with all of our members. Um, we have grown, you know, we've, we've have over 250 members. Mm-hmm. Some, and some people, you know, all they want to do is pay their dues and that, and they're fine, you know, with that, but it's trying to come in contact with the individual members to find out what they would really like to do and how they would like to get involved. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some people like you too, you know, you just jump right in. But there's a lot of people that need to be coaxed in to doing things. They, they don't want to put, be pushy or they just don't know how they fit in. And mm-hmm. so that's one thing that's kind of bad about what's going on right now is we don't even have a chance to, to interact with people on a one-on-one basis. And so I, I will be glad when we can all get together again. But even then, you know, it's difficult, even when we were able to get together, to come in contact with the members to really find out what they want to do. I'm excited. We're going to be moving into a new uh, management software that will mm-hmm. also be kind of a management system for the league. And hopefully that might help us uh, to be able to interact with people better on an, in- on an individual basis, because we'll... It's, it's still all going to be, you know, computerized or, you know, with the internet, but I think it might make it easier for people to find committees that they would like to interact with. Right now, mm-hmm. it's almost up to the committee chair to kind of find those people. And I'm hoping we can maybe go the other way. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully that helps out, you know, because... I mean, I think you have a lot of people that 
like you said, they don't know kind of where they fit in. So that's kind of the main challenge, trying to get people's talents and have them, you know, contribute in a way that's meaningful to them, you know? Right. Because, you know, I'm retired, so I can put a lot of time in. So uh, you two work, Nikia, I know, has family to take care Mm -hmm. of too. And, you know, how, you know, so everybody has different things that they can do at different times. And how can we get that all to work together? Yep, definitely. All right, so what's one myth about politics or public policy that you would want everyone to know about? Like the one myth that you'd like to just shatter this evening? I think it goes back to voting. I think Mm -hmm. people don't realize that they truly have a voice and they just have to figure out how to use that voice. And part of that does come down um, to voting. People don't realize that, you know, they could call their county commissioner with a problem. And if it's a good government official, elected official, they're going to try to help you. Mm -hmm. Something else that I did at one point in my career is the university has like, you know, leadership academies. And Mm -hmm. I was involved in one of those programs. And it was actually suggested to me, it happened to be an election year, the lobbyist for the College of Agriculture, I was kind of asking him, you know, about a project to do associated with leadership. And he suggested, well, why not work with one of our uh, elected officials? Well, the only elected official that was in our area that was associated with the research center there in Davie was Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So mm-hmm. when she was here in, in the, in the uh, Florida house, and so I spent one semester, two or three days in her office, and then spent a week in Tallahassee. And that probably told me more about politics than anything else, that the politicians, these elected officials, weren't that different from what, uh, doing what I was doing in terms of as an extension, you know, I would get calls all the time about, you know, how to solve this problem, how, how to deal with this issue, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what the elected officials were doing. I mean, Debbie would have, you know, there was calls coming in all the times in terms of, I can't figure out how to do this. I can't figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what the people in our office are doing is trying to connect people together to help solve their problems. And, it gave me a new respect for politicians. And I probably joked about him a lot more before that internship than afterwards. Because I think in general, most of them, their hearts are in the right place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes after they get elected, I think there's things go a little wrong. But in general, the reason they're there is because they really think that they can help people. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you a different question. Which person would you say has had the most impact on your political views? I think uh, one person who has has had a strong uh, impact on my political views is actually my husband. Mm -hmm. And that's because... 
when I first met him, he never voted. He just has never, I mean, still, he's really still not into uh, politics. He, mm-hmm. he never voted. He was just a non-voter. And I, I was just appalled at that. I mean, my family, we've always voted. I mean, I can't remember that. And he's just very much a passive person, didn't really want to get involved with all of it. But the more that we talked, the more I finally convinced him that there really was a reason uh, to vote. Yes, so now he does vote. But it also made me realize that, that again, that we have to keep educating, you know, people. I mean, we've been married, you know, 30 years so now. People don't want to get involved with politics, and yet it's so important. And uh, so in some ways, he's probably had more of an impact because he was the total opposite of me when it came came to our politics. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, it does, yeah. (laughs) That's a wonderful story. And I... So happy that he votes. <laughs> so, <yay. laughs> okay, uh, Janelle. Yeah, so this is our last question for this evening. So this podcast is called Democracy in Action. So what does this phrase mean to you? Democracy in action. Democracy in action means you have a good functioning government. All three parts of the government that are balancing each other. And for some reason, I think we've gotten totally off track. I don't know where it all stems from, but we we have become way, way too partisan. And we need to come back to the table and be able to talk to each other. So for me, that would be democracy in action is when you have a functioning government. And that means that all parties are talking to each other and all branches of the government are communicating with each other. Some, something has changed. I, I think it's as we become just the Republicans, don't speak to the Democrats, and nothing is mm-hmm. getting done. Gotcha. All right. So as that concludes our interview, Monica, I'm so happy that you're able to join us and that you know we're able to talk to you about everything because I learned a lot about you tonight that I didn't know. So... <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. Thanks for listening to the Democracy in Action podcast. For more information about the League of Women Voters of Broward County, you can visit our website at lwvbroward.org.